0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. We looked at Obadiah last week. Joel precedes Obadiah in the Old Testament. Joel Amos Obadiah. And we'll look at the first chapter of the book of Joel this evening. It's hard for us as Westerners to appreciate the devastation that a swarm of locusts can have on a society. In fact, locust outbreaks are rare even in, in any part of the world in our day. And that is partially due to international agencies who constantly are watching over these locust outbreaks. They have agencies that use this satellite reconnaissance and once they see, somehow they figure out where these um, these eggs are being laid, they're able to send over some powerful pesticides with uh, planes or, or whatever in order to, to eliminate all of these swarms of locusts before they hatch. In 1889, there was a swarm in the Middle East that was estimated to be 12,000 square miles. 12,000 square miles. One square mile of, of that locust outbreak was estimated to contain 120 million locusts for a total of 1.4 trillion locusts. And we we don't quite comprehend that, uh, seeing that, that amount of, of bugs coming toward us all at once. When a female locust lays her eggs, she deposits about 300 egg pods, containing 75 eggs in each for a total of 22,500 baby locusts at one time. And once the eggs are laid, they hatch within uh, three to ten days, so it 's no wonder that these locusts cause so much damage. Could you imagine as a parent trying to feed twenty two thousand five hundred starving babies? And they are so mad they want they want food so they 'll go go and uh, tear whatever they need to apart in eighteen eighty one to prevent a potential ar- outbreak. A group of people from Cyprus dug up uh, destroyed locust eggs. And the total weight of the eggs was 1,300 tons, 2.6 million pounds. That's about half the weight of the space shuttle, our our, our, uh, Challenger space shuttle or whatever that that we have going to space. That's how much area these things take up. And that's in their egg form. Once they become full grown, it would weigh a lot more, obviously. In 1988, the civil war in Chad prevented international destruction of developing hatches of locusts. And as a result, this perilous swarm of locusts spread throughout North Africa, devastating some of the poorest nations and threatening part of Europe as well. And what we don't understand because we haven't experienced it firsthand is that locust plagues are, are significant and, and have a significant effect on an economy. Scarcity of food, because the locusts have eaten up everything, results in people eating only enough to survive. And obviously when people are eating very little, their immune system weakens. And so when you have weakened immune system, you have the spread of disease. And as a result, you have disease-ridden people who who are unable to trade with other countries and so on because no one wants to trade with, with people who are all diseased. And as a result, it causes high inflation in the cost of food products. And, and even once the locusts die, they, they live for about 113 days after they hatch, the, the spreading of typhus is, is inevitable. And so disease becomes even more rampant. And the result is widespread disease in both people and animals. And that's all because of these little grasshopper-like bugs that, that come and destroy all the vegetation in sight. And Joel in his prophecy speaks of a recent locust plague during their time that caused significant damage on Israel. And he used that plague or that outbreak of locusts as an illustration of the coming judgment of God. And and that's the judgment of the, that happens during the day of the Lord. We talked about that a little bit last week. We'll talk about it some more today. So let's read Joel chapter 1 and then we'll discuss Uh, what he means and then how we can apply it to our lives. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To You, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for You, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Tonight we're going to see in this chapter of Joel... That the Lord brings His people to repent through the devastation of these locusts, and He will bring uh, His people in that final day to to repent as well as a result of the Day of the Lord. The first thing that we see in in this passage is verses one through four, a call to attention. Joel talks about how God is getting their attention, and he, and he does it with uh, he first introduces himself, introduces the situation in verse one. Himself, And then um, in verses 2 and 3, we see the uniqueness of this destruction. This was unique a, a unique way in which God was judging His people. He says, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. As far as judgment was concerned on the people of Israel themselves, no plague was ever this significant on them. Now certainly there was the plague in, in Egypt when God brought the locusts uh, to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt when they were holding Israel in captivity. But never had God done it this significantly on His own people. And Joel says, Has there ever been a day like this in your, the time that you've been alive? How about in your Father's Day? Has there ever been a time in which God has judged you so significantly, so severely. And the uniqueness of this day is so significant that it will be talked about for future generations. That's why in verse 3 he says, tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. The necessity of teaching this truth that God is a God who hates sin and will judge sin was to be taught to their sons. To their sons to their sons, and then those sons to the next generation. The point is is that it should be passed on for future generations. That people should know that God is holy and that He demands payment for sin. We see the scope of the the destruction in verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten basically the point is not that there are necessarily different types of locusts there's one type of locust that does one thing another type of locust that does another thing the point is is that it is total it is complete it is it is a complete annihilation that is there is wave upon wave of locusts so that when they overlook something some green vegetation or some sort of grain that was left behind then the next wave of locusts would come and, and take it away. And if they left something behind, then the next wave. And the point is that it was total devastation. And the purpose for this devastation was so that God could turn His people to repent. To repent of their sin and turn back to Him. And that's why in verse, verses 5-14, through 14, we have this um, this call for repentance. This call for repentance because the devastation this devastation that Israel had seen was so thorough that it would affect every aspect of society. And we'll see this as we go through. But first of all, it will affect the drunkards and their enjoyment of wine. Secondly, it will affect the religious system and their their ability to bring sacrifices to God. And then thirdly, it will affect the farmers and their harvest. And as a result, each person will be unable to, to have a a meal that would be adequate enough to, to help them to survive. And so God goes through their whole society and He says no one is untouched by the, the devastation that this, these locusts bring. So let's turn to verses 5-12 through 12 and see the call to mourn. We first saw the call to attention where Joel gets everyone's attention, shows them what's happening, and now he's saying this is why this has happened so that you will mourn over your sins. Verse 5, Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wise, uh, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white." He first addresses the drunkards and the destruction that would come as a result of the vineyards being taken away from them. No longer would they have wine being uh, so prevalent in their day that they would just be able to grab some wine and be able to enjoy it. And so he says, you drunkards, you people who enjoy this thing will not be able to anymore because I've completely devastated you and the idea of a nation has coming to invade, we, we might think that that's an army. Verse 6, "...and a nation has invaded My land mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness." That simply is the idea of this army of locusts, that they come with the teeth of lions and with the fangs of lioness that they are going to enact so much devastation on you that it will be as if an army came through with these very sharp teeth and had, had eaten up everything in, in the area. And the point is is that the, the devastation will be complete, so it will take away the things that they enjoy. The Lord had sustained the land by giving them these vines, giving them this, this uh, ability to even drink this type of wine. And the vine was a symbol of a land of paradise. You remember, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, it was filled with all sorts of of beautiful vegetation and all these things that provided for their sustenance and enjoyment even, and God was taking that away. The point is that, that vegetation is a sign of God's blessing on them, particularly in their day when they're heavy agricultural, they're a heavy agricultural society, and And in addition to the vine and the the vegetation that we see in the Garden of Eden, we also see it in the land of Canaan where Israel came in and they were to enjoy all of the prosperity that came not as a result of their own planting, not as a result of their own ingenuity, but as a result of what other people had done before them. Basically, God had provided that for them and He was showing them that it was a land of blessing because it had all this vegetation. It was a land flowing... As we saw in Joshua with milk and honey. What became a symbol of divine blessing has now become a symbol of divine judgment. That God was enacting judgment on his people. But it wasn't only the drunkards who were affected, it was also the entire nation and their ability to worship, verses 8 through 10. Joel says, Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. In verses 8 through 10, the destruction of crops would end up paralyzing the religious system, which was based on the sacrificial routine. So it wasn't just that they, they were unable to drink wine anymore. Now they're, they were going to be affected. The priests were going to be affected because they received part of their living, part of their uh, livelihood from the sacrificial system. Remember, the priests, that was their job. And so a portion of what was sacrificed was given to them to eat and, uh, and, and to use for their own uh, well-being. But now... Because all of this these grain offerings would not be able to be brought to them, their their uh, ability to thrive was going to be hindered, and so Joel says, "Wail," verse eight, like a virgin girded with sackcloth. This uh, this word that's used for virgin here um, is used for a a woman with a husband, um, although we we think of the idea of virgin as never having any sort of of relationship with a man, it's actually uh, a virgin, a person who, in fact, was um, that way, but she she was betrothed to be married, similar to Mary and Joseph, you remember from Matthew chapter one. And what's happening here is is Joel's using the illustration. He's saying just like a virgin would would wail and and grieve over the loss of her bridegroom so you are going to wail and grieve over the loss of of all these things that that have, have been prepared for you weddings in that day were a time of multicolored garments but those would be replaced notice in verse 8 wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth something that was associated with death and with mourning instead of her going to her wedding day with all these beautiful garments and a time of rejoicing, it's now replaced with sackcloth and grieving and, and, um, and weeping. And it was the, the fact that, that Israel, you can see the, the, the relationship here, the virgin and the bridegroom is, is Israel and God. The, the, it's not that God had died and Israel is mourning because God had died. It is that God had removed Himself from them. He had removed his blessing from them, and as a result, they were going to weep and wail, and they were going to mourn over it because they had uh they had not fulfilled their covenant to God and so this was an appropriate term for israel that that Israel was the bride of of God since as a nation she had a cover a covenant relationship with God, and because she Israel did not fulfill their end of the covenant, God had to bring judgment upon them. In verse 9, we see that the religious system is cut off, that the priests mourn because part of their food and income was what came from the offerings. And then in verse 10, we see that the fields are completely devastated, that the locusts had come in and, and just completely torn it apart. So it affects the drunkards, Verses 5 through 7, it affects the nation, particularly the sacrificial system in verses 8 through 10, but it also affects every single person in society. Verses 11 and 12, we see that it affects the farmers and the vine dressers. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. The trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. The reason that he lists all these different types of vegetation or trees in verse 12, he says the vine dries up, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field. He's basically showing, like he had in in the situation with with the, the locusts coming through, that it was going to be complete and total annihilation. It was going to be complete devastation that, that all of the food sources that they had were going to be dried up. And like the vegetation we see in verse 12, their rejoicing would dry up as well. You see, the locusts were so significant. They were, they were so great in their destruction that verse 12, the end says, indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. So the locusts were able to take out all the vegetation, all their food sources, but they were also able to take away the joy of the people of that land, which we wouldn't really attribute to locusts generally, but that's what Joel tells us, that the, that the rejoicing ends up drying up as well. And the point is, is that, um, that even their joy was not untouched by the locusts. The luxuries of life for them would be gone. The elements needed to worship, the luxuries of life being wine, things like that. Verse five through seven. The elements needed to worship were gone. Verses eight through ten. And then even the very necessities of life would be dried up and taken away from them. Verses eleven and twelve. To lose the enjoyment of wine was one thing. To be unable to worship properly at uh, with, with the priests was another thing, but being unable to eat was a death sentence for them. And it was only going to be a matter of time unless God intervened that they would would die for lack of food, lack of sustenance. And so we have the call for attention. We have the call to mourn. And now in verses 13-14, through 14, we have the call for consecration. The call for consecration. We see at first, by example, the priests, uh, they, they consecrate themselves first of all in verse 13. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. The first thing that Joel called them to do was, yes, you need to mourn because of all the things that are taken away. But priests, you need to set... This, you need to set your, the example for the rest of the people. You consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart. Take, take out the sackcloth. It's time to start mourning. And and prepare a fast, you will see in the next verse, for all the people. So it begins with an example by the priest. But then it, it moves to a proclamation. Verse 14, a call for a holy fast. Joel says, Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now, it seems like the fast would be inevitable. It's almost a forced type of fasting because all the food had been taken from them, so how how else could they or what else could they do besides fast since there was no food? But we have to remember that there probably was some food that had been stored up in barns or, or wherever and that they were able to Um, To to, to, uh, use for their sustenance, but it was certainly limited at best. There's probably not very much. Now, fasting was a national time of repentance, of humility, of calling on God for help. And that's why he says at the end of verse 14, "...and all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord." That's the point of the fasting. It is to to remove all of the distractions from life, even eating itself, and give yourself wholly to God. Call out to God and ask for His, His help. Ask for His grace in this time. And the purpose of the fasting was so that the entire nation would repent. That they would ask the Lord to forgive them and to restore His good pleasure to them. That was the purpose of it. So that's the illustration that that Joel gives. He says, there has been, you know Israel, you've seen it, it just happened. There has been this locust plague. Now I want to use that, Joel says, similar to what Obadiah did with with, uh, the destruction that happened there. I want to use that as an illustration for what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, in the time in which God comes with judgment on all the nations. We said that the day of the Lord is... The time that begins right after Jesus comes to take His saints home. We as believers will not be there for that time. We will be spared from the wrath of God to come. You've heard that 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says that we will be spared from the wrath to come. So we will not be a part of that, but those who remain will be a part of God's ultimate judgment. When He enacts judgment to the point where millions and millions, perhaps billions, are killed during that time. That seven-year tribulation we know it as. Even to the point where, where as I mentioned last week, that blood will be flowing down the mountains like a river. It will be so much. And and God's judgment will be severe at that time. So what Joel is doing here is he's saying, you see this judgment that, that God has shown to you? With regard to the locust on your individual nation, God will do this on all the nations who reject Him one day in the day of the Lord, and that's why He turns, Joel turns, to um, to show them what He is ultimately talking about in this book, and that is that the day of the Lord is near, and that the response of all people is to repent. Look at verse fifteen. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. We had a call to attention, verses one through four. We had a call to mourn, verses five through twelve. We had a call to um, to consecration, verses thirteen and fourteen. And now we have a call for all people to be sober because of the coming day of the Lord. A cult of sobriety because of the coming day of the Lord. Verses 15-20 through Just as the locusts had destroyed the crops, so destruction would come from God and God would become the destroyer. That's why it says in verse 15, it says, last for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Or we could say that the word there is actually destruction, the, the destroyer. Excuse me, and it will become it will come as destruction from the destroyer. Joel, Joel uh, piggybacks these two terms to show the, the complete and utter devastation that will come as a result of God's judging hand. The two words there in the in the Hebrew language are very similar. He's using kind of a play on word. It is shad and shaddai. You've heard of the term El Shaddai. It is the Almighty, the Destroyer. And Shad is destruction. So it is that he's using this play on terms that, that God will cause destruction because he is the Destroyer. He will bring destruction on all those who oppose him. And the, the warning that Joel had given was significant, even for his hearers. Because Joel tells them that the day of the Lord was near for them. And how much nearer is it for us? That Joel was saying if they did not repent, that that day of the Lord would come and it would come quickly and that God would respond in judgment. How much more should we take heed that that we should recognize that the day of the Lord is drawing near? That it will not be long before Christ returns. And we have to make sure that we are ready, like, like the um, the brides in the the parable that Jesus told, that they have to get their lamps ready. It's not; it's too late to to get oil in the lamp once He's already come. We have to be ready now because no one knows the day or the time when Jesus will return. Jesus said, "The Son of Man does not even know, but only but only God the Father knows." So there is a warning here that God would bring destruction on all people at the day of the Lord. The the helplessness of the people is seen in verses 16-18. through That there would be a famine and a drought as a result. And Joel is basically going back to his day. He's talking about what happens as a result of this locust plague. And he's saying, you see this famine and drought that will result from all these locusts destroying all these things? How much more devastating will the day of the Lord be? Verse 18 says, How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. There would be both a famine, verses 16 and 17, and a drought. The drought would result in weakened herds and flocks. So that the animals were even suffering as a result of this locust outbreak. The sheep are typically the last animals to suffer because they are uh, animals that go and dig into the grass roots. They're able to get down low and and dig in the dirt and able to get some sort of of food source from the roots of the grass. But Joel is saying that, that this would be so devastating, verse 18, that even they would suffer, the end it says. Even the flocks of sheep will suffer. That's how devastating it will be. And then verses 19-20, through we see the widespread drought is likened to a destructive fire. He says, To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness." Joel says, see, not only are the priests going to set an example, I'm going to set an example for you, Israel. And that's why he begins verse 19 with, To you, O Lord, I cry. I am not, I am not free from, from repenting of what I have done either. I am not free from sin. I have to turn to God just as you do. And so he sets the example. And, and uh, he expected the, the people to follow his example. So what can we learn from Joel chapter 1 this evening? What is it that we can learn? First of all, God calls everyone, every man everywhere to repent. As I said last week, God hates sin. And that's why He has planned for this ultimate destruction. For this destruction of people who reject Him. That's why He's planned for a place called hell, where people will be punished forever for the sin that they've committed and so we we ought to um we ought to repent first of all look to ourselves before we look to to lead other people's away from repentance but look to ourselves have we repented of our sin this is not just an external lip service oh god i i repent of my sins no it is something that grips our heart it is done in sincerity and and god is calling for Torn hearts, not just torn garments. He's not expecting us to... Like in that day when they mourned, they tore their garments and showed how much they hated themselves. The the idea was they they tore their garments so that they could have a bare chest and beat their chest because they felt so badly about their sin. And God's saying, I don't want just torn garments. I want torn hearts. I want hearts that have been affected by what this means. And so sometimes we don't recognize that until complete devastation happens. All creation suffers because of human sin. Even the wild animals cry out. We saw in verse twenty, or excuse me, verse eighteen. Even the wild animals cry out. And the point that Joel is making there in verse eighteen is that if they recognize that that their creator is what is what they need to turn to then how much more should we recognize that we need to turn to our Creator? That that the bleeding of the sheep, the sounds that these animals make in, in crying out for food, for, for a source of help, should call us to repent as well. I mean, how hard-hearted are we when animals turn to God for their, for their needs and we don't even do that? That was the point that, that Joel was making. That... The, the beasts urgently require their food and drink, and they are actually setting an example for Judah and Israel and even us that even we should turn to God. We should not be so hard-hearted. Even the dumbest of animals, the sheep, recognizes God's judgment and responds by crying out to Him. Could not... Israel and by comparison we do the same thing could not we turn to God in repentance for our sins the herds groan the flocks groan and Joel saying but you remain stiff-necked and confounded what will it take for you to turn to God so God calls for all men everywhere to repent that's the first thing that we can learn secondly there is hope there is hope. We've been talking about destruction and devastation that happens, and certainly it is disheartening to us, but there is hope. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. God is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger. Do you realize that if God were not slow to anger, all this devastation that we've been talking about would have already taken place in our lives. As soon as we committed that first sin, we're gone. Because God would have every right to enact justice on us because He is a holy God and we are sinful. But do you realize that God has been slow to anger with you and with the people in your area, with the people that you live with, with the people... Who are unsaved around you? God is slow to anger, and we see verse thirteen that He is abounding in loving kindness. I I uh, I wanted to to give us hope today because chapter one was such a devastating um, uh, set of circumstances. I didn't want to leave us thinking that that God is just ready to punish us because that's not the way that God is. David said of 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 God that He is. A God who does not treat us as our sins deserve. Never ever thought about that? That your sins deserve God's judgment. You deserve to be punished by God. You deserve to be a part of that trib- tribulation. And I deserve it as well. But because of God's grace, because of His mercy, He has spared you. He has provided for you a way of escape not only from the wrath to come, but from ultimate judgment that will happen in in an eternal hell. He has provided that for you. And how can we not turn to Him with great hope that He is a great and loving God, slow to anger and abounding in love to all those who call on Him and repent of their sins. So first, God calls every man everywhere to repent. Secondly, there is hope. Thirdly, the Lord is faithful to His promises. The Lord is faithful to His promises. Let me have you look at verse 23 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 23, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. My great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then My people will never be put to shame. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of My people and My inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up My land. The Lord provides hope because He is faithful to His promises. He says, it doesn't have to end this way, Israel. When you repent, I will, I will turn your circumstances around. I will restore to you all the things that have been taken away. And you will enjoy all these things that the locust, he calls it in verse 25 of chapter 2, My great army. I will restore all those things to you so that you will have plenty of food. You will have plenty of, of animals to be able to sacrifice, of grain offerings. You will also have plenty of pleasures in this world, similar to what the drunkards had with the wine. And that is because the Lord is faithful to His promise same sort of promises are true for us. That God, yes, will bring judgment on all those who oppose Him. But we have a promise in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 that God will keep us from that day of judgment. Let me have you turn there because I do want you to see it. I've mentioned that a couple times, but I don't want to take for granted that we we all understand that clearly. So let's just look at that for ourselves. And then I want to give you one more thing that we can learn from this first chapter of Joel and then we'll we'll be done. Revelation chapter three. This is the angel um, speaking to the seven churches. You remember here at the beginning of Revelation, and this is to the church at Philadelphia. Let's begin reading with verse eight. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept My Word and have not denied My name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the Word of My perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The angel of the church is talking specifically here to the church at Philadelphia. But at the beginning of Revelation, before the angel talks to all these churches, he says, what I say to you, I say to all the churches. That is, it's not just... This church that I'm specifically talking about that will be saved from the day of judgment, it will be all the churches of Christ. Um, Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. You'll see this. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he, he, He broadens it to more than just this church, just these seven churches. He broadens it to all who have ears. That is, all the people who have turned in faith to Christ. And so verse 10, it says that I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That time of testing, that hour of testing is actually a very long hour. It is seven years. That is the seven year tribulation that God will keep us from. So we have a promise from God, just like Israel had a promise from God through their through his servant Joel, that we will be kept from this, this day of the Lord, this day the testing portion of the Day of the Lord. And as I said last week, the Day of the Lord does not end after the judgment ends, at the end of the seven years. Immediately after that, you have the Battle of Armageddon. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And during that thousand years, Christ comes to this earth to reign as King, to set up His throne as King. We will be a part of that. That whole period from the time in which Jesus Christ comes back all the way till the end of the thousand year reign. That is what the Scriptures refer to when it says the day of the Lord. That is going to be that that period of time. And what a day that will be for those who have repented of their sins. We can look forward to that with great anticipation. So, God calls all men everywhere to repent. There is hope. And the Lord is faithful to His promises. Next week, we're going to uh, see that the Lord desires to live among His people. I won't get into that in detail this week, but but think of it that God, the God of the universe, would could be anywhere or doing anything, and yet His desire is to be among His people, a people who are sinful and who were at one time opposed to them. I mean, think of your enemies. Would you like to be living among your enemies right now? And yet, God is, is is living among... He wants to live among His own enemies. I, I guess you'd say His former enemies is what we are because of Jesus Christ. And we can look forward to that with anticipation and with great hope. And I hope you'll be here next week as we talk about uh, the fact that God is a personal God, that He desires to have a relationship with us. And He does not just... Provide a way of escape for us and then go off into a corner and let us deal with it. He desires to have a relationship with us. So we'll talk about that next week. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father and our God, we are amazed at Your grace. The more we understand the weight and the severity of our sin, the more we appreciate and love Your grace. We cannot ever repay what You've done for us. There was nothing in us that You saw that was good. All of our righteousnesses, everything that we wanted to do that was good, to You was filthy rags because we had hearts of evil. We desired nothing but ourselves. And yet, You looked upon us, although we were Your enemies, and You chose to spare us to shower Your grace upon us. Not because we are better than any of these unbelievers that we live near. Not because we had better potential than, than any of these unbelievers that, that do not know You or have not known You throughout history. We were nothing. And yet, You saved us. You chose us before the foundation of the world to be Your children. And we bow in amazement and awe at Your grace to us. Lord, help us never to boast in anything except for the cross that brought us to our knees. Help us to love our Savior more than life itself. Help us to live for our Savior, to live to know You more. Help us to give ourselves Holy and completely to you, and be constantly like the people of Israel, looking for for sin in our lives that need to be eliminated. Lord, we don't want to be a part of that final destination, our destruction, devastation. We don't want to be a part of that tribulation, and we're so thankful that you have made a way of escape for us. And we pray that we would be using the resources that we have been given. We think of the verse that says, to whom much has been given, much more will be required. We ask that You would use what we have been given to spread the great news of who You are and what You demand to all the people around us. That we would not be ashamed of the Gospel of Christ that brought us to salvation, but that we would share it with great boldness And with a great desire to see people changed just as we were. And Lord, we know that that cannot happen until they recognize the severity of their sin and turn from it. That is not something that they can do on their own just as we did not, but only through the power of the cross. We look to You to give us the grace and we pray that You would help us this week as we consider these truths and what they mean for our lives